0: turning out great films one after the other, while Disney turned out flop after flop. You would think that the CEO of Disney would be curious how Pixar was doing that. But during the 20-year relationship, he visited Pixar for a total of about two and a half hours, only to give little congratulatory speeches. He was never curious. I was amazed. Curiosity is very important. That was overly harsh. Eisner had been up to Pixar a bit more than that, including visits when Jobs wasn't with him. But it was true that he showed little curiosity about the artistry or technology at the studio. Jobs, likewise, didn't spend much time trying to learn from Disney's management. The open sniping between Jobs and Eisner began in the summer of 2002, Jobs had always admired the creative spirit of the great Walt Disney, especially because he had nurtured a company to last for generations. He viewed Walt's nephew, Roy, as an embodiment of this historic legacy and spirit. Roy was still on the Disney board, despite his own growing estrangement from Eisner, and Jobs let him know that he would not renew the Pixar-Disney deal as long as Eisner was still the CEO. Roy Disney and Stanley Gold, his close associate on the Disney board, began warning other directors about the Pixar problem. That prompted Eisner to send the board an intemperate email in late August 2002. He was confident that Pixar would eventually renew its deal, he said, partly because Disney had rights to the Pixar movies and characters that had been made thus far. Plus, he said, Disney would be in a better negotiating position in a year after Pixar finished Finding Nemo. Yesterday we saw for the second time the new Pixar movie Finding Nemo that comes out next May, he wrote. This will be a reality check for those guys. It's okay, but nowhere near as good as their previous films. Of course, they think it's great. There were two major problems with this email. It leaked to the Los Angeles Times, provoking jobs to go ballistic, and Eisner's assessment of the movie was wrong. Very wrong. Finding Nemo became Pixar's and Disney's biggest hit thus far. It easily beat out The Lion King to become, for the time being, the most successful animated movie in history. It grossed $340 million domestically, and $868 million worldwide. Until 2010, it was also the most popular DVD of all time, with 40 million copies sold and spawned some of the most popular rides at Disney theme parks. In addition, it was a richly textured, subtle, and deeply beautiful artistic achievement that won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. I liked the film because it was about taking risks and learning to let those you love take risks, Jobs said. Its success added $183 million to Pixar's cash reserves, giving it a hefty war chest of $521 million for the final showdown with Disney. Shortly after Finding Nemo was finished, Jobs made Eisner an offer that was so one-sided it was clearly meant to be rejected. Instead of a 50-50 split on revenues, as in the existing deal, Jobs proposed a new arrangement in which Pixar would own outright the films it made and the characters in them, and it would merely pay Disney a 7.5% fee to distribute the movies. Plus, the last two films under the existing deal the Incredibles and Cars were the ones in the works, would shift to the new distribution deal. Eisner, however, held one powerful trump card. Even if Pixar didn't renew, Disney had the right to make sequels of Toy Story and the other movies that Pixar had made, and it owned all the characters, from Woody to Nemo, just as it owned Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Eisner was already planning, or threatening, to have Disney's own animation studio do a Toy Story 3, which Pixar had declined to do. When you see what that company did putting out Cinderella 2, you shudder at what would have happened, Jobs said. Eisner was able to force Roy Disney off the board in November 2003, but that didn't end the turmoil. Disney released a scathing open letter. The company has lost its focus its creative energy, and its heritage, he wrote. His litany of Eisner's alleged failings included not building a constructive relationship with Pixar. By this point, Jobs had decided that he no longer wanted to work with Eisner, so in January 2004, he publicly announced that he was cutting off negotiations with Disney. Jobs was usually disciplined in not making public the strong opinions that he shared with friends around his Palo Alto kitchen table, but this time he did not hold back. In a conference call with reporters, he said that while Pixar was producing hits, Disney Animation was making embarrassing duds. He scoffed at Eisner's notion that Disney made any creative contribution to the Pixar films. The truth is, There has been little creative collaboration with Disney for years. You can compare the creative quality of our films with the creative quality of Disney's last three films and judge each company's creative ability yourselves. In addition to building a better creative team, Jobs had pulled off the remarkable feat of building a brand that was now as big a draw for moviegoers as Disney's. We think the Pixar brand is now the most powerful and trusted brand in animation. When Jobs called to give him a heads-up, Roy Disney replied, When the Wicked Witch is dead, we'll be together again. John Lasseter was aghast at the prospect of breaking up with Disney. I was worried about my children, what they would do with the characters we'd created, he recalled. It was like a dagger to my heart. When he told his top staff in the Pixar conference room, he started crying, and he did so again when he addressed the 800 or so Pixar employees gathered in the studio's atrium. It's like you have these dear children, and you have to give them up to be adopted by convicted child molesters. Jobs came to the atrium stage next and tried to calm things down. He explained why it might be necessary to break with Disney, and he assured them that Pixar as an institution had to keep looking forward to be successful. He has the absolute ability to make you believe, said Orrin Jacob, a longtime technologist at the studio. Suddenly, we all had the confidence that whatever happened, Pixar would flourish. Bob Iger, Disney's chief operating officer, had to step in and do damage control. He was as sensible and solid as those around him were volatile. His background was in television. He had been president of the ABC network, which was acquired in 1996 by Disney. His reputation was as a corporate suit, and he excelled at deft management. But he also had a sharp eye for talent, a good-humored ability to understand people and a quiet flair that he was secure enough to keep muted. Unlike Eisner and Jobs, he had a disciplined calm, which helped him deal with large egos. Steve did some grandstanding by announcing that he was ending talks with us, Iger later recalled. We went into crisis mode, and I developed some talking points to settle things down. Eisner had presided over ten great years at Disney, when Frank Wells served as his president, Wells freed Eisner from many management duties so he could make his suggestions, usually valuable and often brilliant, on ways to improve each movie project, theme park ride, television pilot, and countless other products. But after Wells was killed in a helicopter crash in 1994, Eisner never found the right manager. Katzenberg had demanded Wells's job which is why Eisner ousted him. Michael Ovitz became president in 1995. It was not a pretty sight, and he was gone in less than two years. Jobs later offered his assessment. For his first ten years as CEO, Eisner did a really good job. For the last ten years, he really did a bad job. And the change came when Frank Wells died. Eisner is a really good creative guy He gives really good notes. So when Frank was running operations, Eisner could be like a bumblebee going from project to project, trying to make them better. But when Eisner had to run things, he was a terrible manager. Nobody liked working for him. They felt they had no authority. He had this strategic planning group that was like the Gestapo, in that you couldn't spend any money, not even a dime, without them approving it. Even though I broke with him, I had to respect his achievements in the first ten years, and there was a part of him I actually liked. He's a fun guy to be around at times, smart, witty, but he had a dark side to him. His ego got the better of him. Eisner was reasonable and fair to me at first, but eventually, over the course of dealing with him for a decade, I came to see a dark side to him. Eisner's biggest problem in 2004 was that he did not fully fathom how messed up his animation division was. Its two most recent movies, Treasure Planet and Brother Bear, did no honor to the Disney legacy or to its balance sheets. Hit animation movies were the lifeblood of the company. They spawned theme park rides, toys, and television shows. Toy Story had led to a movie sequel, a Disney on Ice show, a Toy Story musical performed on Disney cruise ships, a direct-to-video film featuring Buzz Lightyear, a computer storybook, two video games, a dozen action toys that sold 25 million units, a clothing line, and nine different attractions at Disney theme parks. This was not the case for Treasure Planet. Michael didn't understand that Disney's problems in animation were as acute as they were, Iger later explained. That manifested itself in the way he dealt with Pixar. He never felt he needed Pixar as much as he really did. In addition, Eisner loved to negotiate and hated to compromise, which was not always the best combination when dealing with Jobs, who was the same way. Every negotiation needs to be resolved by compromises, Iger said. Neither one of them is a master of compromise. The impasse was ended on a Saturday night in March 2005, when Iger got a phone call from former Senator George Mitchell and other Disney board members. They told him that starting in a few months, he would replace Eisner as Disney's CEO. When Iger got up the next morning, he called his daughters, and then Steve Jobs and John Lasseter. He said very simply and clearly that he valued Pixar and wanted to make a deal. Jobs was thrilled. He liked Iger and even marveled at a small connection they had. His former girlfriend Jennifer Egan and Iger's wife, Willow Bay, had been roommates at Penn. That summer, before Iger officially took over, He and Jobs got to have a trial run at making a deal. Apple was coming out with an iPod that would play video as well as music. It needed television shows to sell, and Jobs did not want to be too public in negotiating for them because, as usual, he wanted the product to be secret until he unveiled it on stage. Iger, who had multiple iPods and used them throughout the day, from his 5 a.m. workouts to late at night, had already been envisioning what it could do for television shows. So he immediately offered ABC's most popular shows, Desperate Housewives and Lost. We negotiated that deal in a week, and it was complicated, Iger said. It was important because Steve got to see how I worked and because it showed everyone that Disney could in fact work with Steve. For the announcement of the video iPod, Jobs rented a theater in San Jose, and he invited Iger to be his surprise guest on stage. I had never been to one of his announcements, so I had no idea what a big deal it was, Iger recalled. It was a real breakthrough for our relationship. He saw I was pro-technology and willing to take risks. Jobs did his usual virtuoso performance running through all the features of the new iPod, how it was one of the best things we've ever done, and how the iTunes store would now be selling music videos and short films. Then, as was his habit, he ended with, and yes, there is one more thing. The iPod would be selling TV shows. There was huge applause. He mentioned that the two most popular shows were on ABC. And who owns ABC? Disney! I know these guys, he exulted. When Iger then came on stage, he looked as relaxed and as comfortable as Jobs. One of the things that Steve and I are incredibly excited about is the intersection between great content and great technology, he said. It's great to be here to announce an extension of our relation with Apple, he added. Then, after the proper pause, he said, Not with Pixar, but with Apple. But it was clear from their warm embrace that a new Pixar-Disney deal was once again possible. It signaled my way of operating, which was, Make love, not war, Iger recalled. We had been at war with Roy Disney, Comcast, Apple, and Pixar. I wanted to fix all that, Pixar most of all. Iger had just come back from opening the new Disneyland in Hong Kong, with Eisner at his side in his last big act as CEO. The ceremonies included the usual Disney parade down Main Street. Iger realized that the only characters in the parade that had been created in the past decade were Pixar's. A light bulb went off, he recalled. I'm standing next to Michael, but I kept it completely to myself because it was such an indictment of his stewardship of animation during that period. After ten years of The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, there were then ten years of nothing. Iger went back to Burbank and had some financial analysis done. He discovered that they had actually lost money on animation in the past decade and had produced little that helped ancillary products. At his first meeting as the new CEO, he presented the analysis to the board, whose members expressed some anger that they had never been told this. As animation goes, so goes our company, he told the board. A hit animated film is a big wave, and the ripples go down to every part of our business, from characters in a parade, to music, to parks, to video games, TV, Internet, consumer products. If I don't have wave-makers, the company is not going to succeed. He presented them with some choices. They could stick with the current animation management, which he didn't think would work. They could get rid of management and find someone else, but he said he didn't know who that would be. Or they could buy Pixar. The problem is, I don't know if it's for sale, and if it is, it's going to be a huge amount of money, he said. The board authorized him to explore a deal. Iger went about it in an unusual way. When he first talked to Jobs, he admitted the revelation that had occurred to him in Hong Kong and how it convinced him that Disney badly needed Pixar. That's why I just loved Bob Iger, recalled Jobs. He just blurted it out. Now that's the dumbest thing you can do as you enter a negotiation at least according to the traditional rule book, he just put his cards out on the table and said, We're screwed. I immediately liked the guy, because that's how I work too. Let's just immediately put all the cards on the table and see where they fall. In fact, that was not usually Jobs' mode of operation. He often began negotiations by proclaiming that the other company's products or services sucked. Jobs and Iger took a lot of walks, around the Apple campus, in Palo Alto, at the Allen & Company retreat in Sun Valley. At first they came up with a plan for a new distribution deal. Pixar would get back all the rights to the movies and characters it had already produced, in return for Disney's getting an equity stake in Pixar, and it would pay Disney a simple fee to distribute its future movies. But Iger worried that such a deal would simply set Pixar up as a competitor to Disney, which would be bad even if Disney had an equity stake in it. So he began to hint that maybe they should actually do something bigger. I want you to know that I am really thinking out of the box on this, he said. Jobs seemed to encourage the advances. It wasn't too long before it was clear to both of us that this discussion might lead to an acquisition discussion, Jobs recalled. But first Jobs needed the blessing of John Lasseter and Ed Catmull, so he asked them to come over to his house. He got right to the point. We need to get to know Bob Iger, he told them. We may want to throw in with him and to help him remake Disney. He's a great guy. They were skeptical at first. He could tell we were pretty shocked, Lassiter recalled. If you guys don't want to do it, that's fine. But I want you to get to know, Iger, before you decide, Jobs continued. I was feeling the same as you, but I've really grown to like the guy. He explained how easy it had been to make the deal to put ABC shows on the iPod, and added, it's night and day different from Eisner's Disney. He's straightforward, and there's no drama with him. Lassiter remembers that he and Catmull just sat there with their mouths slightly open. Iger went to work. He flew from Los Angeles to Lassiter's house for dinner and stayed up well past midnight talking. He also took Catmull out to dinner, and then he visited Pixar Studios, alone, with no entourage and without jobs. I went out and met all the directors one-on-one, and they each pitched me their movie, he said. Lassiter was proud of how much his team impressed Iger, which, of course, made him warm up to Iger. I never had more pride in Pixar than that day, he said. All the teams and pitches were amazing, and Bob was blown away. Indeed, after seeing what was coming up over the next few years—Cars, Ratatouille, Wall-E—Iger told his chief financial officer at Disney— Oh my God, they've got great stuff. We've got to get this deal done. It's the future of the company. He admitted that he had no faith in the movies that Disney Animation had in the works. The deal they proposed was that Disney would purchase Pixar for $7.4 billion in stock. Jobs would thus become Disney's largest shareholder, with approximately 7% of the company's stock, compared to 1.7% owned by Eisner and 1% by Roy Disney. Disney Animation would be put under Pixar, with Lasseter and Catmull running the combined unit. Pixar would retain its independent identity, its studio and headquarters would remain in Emeryville, and it would even keep its own email addresses Iger asked Jobs to bring Lassiter and Catmull to a secret meeting of the Disney board in Century City, Los Angeles, on a Sunday morning. The goal was to make them feel comfortable with what would be a radical and expensive deal. As they prepared to take the elevator from the parking garage, Lassiter said to Jobs, "If I start getting too excited or go on too long, just touch my leg." Jobs ended up having to do it once, but otherwise, Lassiter made the perfect sales pitch. I talked about how we make films, what our philosophies are, the honesty we have with each other, and how we nurture the creative talent, he recalled. The board asked a lot of questions, and Jobs let Lassiter answer most, but Jobs did talk about how exciting it was to connect art with technology. That's what our culture is all about, just like at Apple, he said. Before the Disney board got a chance to approve the merger, however, Michael Eisner arose from the departed to try to derail it. He called Iger and said it was far too expensive. You can fix animation yourself, Eisner told him. How? asked Iger. I know you can, said Eisner. Iger got a bit annoyed. "Michael," How come you say I can fix it when you couldn't fix it yourself, he asked. Eisner said he wanted to come to a board meeting, even though he was no longer a member or an officer, and speak against the acquisition. Iger resisted, but Eisner called Warren Buffett, a big shareholder, and George Mitchell, who was the lead director. The former senator convinced Iger to let Eisner have his say. I told the board that they didn't need to buy Pixar because they already owned 85% of the movies Pixar had already made, Eisner recounted. He was referring to the fact that for the movies already made, Disney was getting that percentage of the gross, plus it had the rights to make all the sequels and exploit the characters. I made a presentation that said, here's the 15% of Pixar that Disney does not already own so that's what you're getting. The rest is a bet on future Pixar films. Eisner admitted that Pixar had been enjoying a good run, but he said it could not continue. I showed the history of producers and directors who had X number of hits in a row and then failed. It happened to Spielberg, Walt Disney, all of them. To make the deal worth it, he calculated, each new Pixar movie would have to gross $1.3 billion. It drove Steve crazy that I knew that, Eisner later said. After he left the room, Iger refuted his argument point by point. Let me tell you what was wrong with that presentation, he began. When the board had finished hearing them both, it approved the deal Iger proposed. Iger flew up to Emeryville to meet Jobs and jointly announced the deal to the Pixar workers. But before they did, Jobs sat down alone with Lassiter and Catmull. If either of you have doubts, he said, I will just tell them no thanks and blow off this deal. He wasn't totally sincere. It would have been almost impossible to do so at that point, but it was a welcome gesture. I'm good, said Lassiter. Let's do it, Catmull agreed. They all hugged, and Jobs wept. Everyone then gathered in the atrium. Disney is buying Pixar, Jobs announced. There were a few tears, but as he explained the deal, the staffers began to realize that in some ways it was a reverse acquisition. Catmull would be the head of Disney Animation, Lassiter its chief creative officer. By the end, they were cheering. Iger had been standing on the side, and Jobs invited him to center stage. As he talked about the special culture of Pixar and how badly Disney needed to nurture it and learn from it, the crowd broke into applause. My goal has always been not only to make great products, but to build great companies, Jobs later said. Walt Disney did that, and the way we did the merger? We kept Pixar as a great company and helped Disney remain one as well. Chapter 34 21st Century Max, Setting Apple Apart Clams, Ice Cubes, and Sunflowers Ever since the introduction of the iMac in 1998, Jobs and Johnny Ive had made beguiling design a signature of Apple's computers. There was a consumer laptop that looked like a tangerine clam, and a professional desktop computer that suggested a Zen ice cube. Like bell-bottoms that turn up in the back of a closet, some of these models looked better at the time than they do in retrospect, and they show a love of design that was, on occasion, a bit too exuberant but they set Apple apart and provided the publicity bursts it needed to survive in a Windows world. The Power Mac G4 Cube, released in 2000, was so alluring that one ended up on display in New York's Museum of Modern Art. An eight-inch perfect cube the size of a Kleenex box, it was the pure expression of Jobs' aesthetic. The sophistication came from minimalism, No buttons marred the surface. There was no CD tray, just a subtle slot. And as with the original Macintosh, there was no fan. Pure zen. When you see something that's so thoughtful on the outside, you say, Oh, wow, it must really be thoughtful on the inside, he told Newsweek. We make progress by eliminating things, by removing the superfluous. The G4 Cube was almost ostentatious in its lack of ostentation, and it was powerful, but it was not a success. It had been designed as a high-end desktop, but Jobs wanted to turn it, as he did almost every product, into something that could be mass-marketed to consumers. The Cube ended up not serving either market well. Workaday professionals weren't seeking a jewel-like sculpture for their desks and mass-market consumers were not eager to spend twice what they'd pay for a plain vanilla desktop. Jobs predicted that Apple would sell 200,000 cubes per quarter. In its first quarter, it sold half that. The next quarter, it sold fewer than 30,000 units. Jobs later admitted that he had overdesigned and overpriced the cube, just as he had the next computer, but gradually he was learning his lesson. In building devices like the iPod, he would control costs and make the trade-offs necessary to get them launched on time and on budget. Partly because of the poor sales of the Cube, Apple produced disappointing revenue numbers in September 2000. That was just when the tech bubble was deflating and Apple's education market was declining. The company's stock price, which had been above $60, fell 50% in one day, and by early December it was below $15. None of this deterred Jobs from continuing to push for distinctive, even distracting, new design. When flat-screen displays became commercially viable, he decided it was time to replace the iMac, the translucent consumer desktop computer that looked as if it were from a Jetsons cartoon. Ive came up with a model that was somewhat conventional, with the guts of the computer attached to the back of the flat screen. Jobs didn't like it. As he often did both at Pixar and at Apple, he slammed on the brakes to rethink things. There was something about the design that lacked purity, he felt, Why have this flat display if you're going to glom all this stuff on its back? He asked Ive. We should let each element be true to itself. Jobs went home early that day to mull over the problem, then called Ive to come by. They wandered into the garden, which Jobs' wife had planted with a profusion of sunflowers. Every year I do something wild with the garden, and that time it involved masses of sunflowers. With a sunflower house for the kids, she recalled. Johnny and Steve were riffing on their design problem when Johnny asked, What if the screen was separated from the base like a sunflower? He got excited and started sketching. Ive liked his designs to suggest a narrative, and he realized that a sunflower shape would convey that the flat screen was so fluid and responsive that it could reach for the sun. In Ives's new design, the Max screen was attached to a movable chrome neck, so that it looked not only like a sunflower, but also like a cheeky Luxo lamp. Indeed, it evoked the playful personality of Luxo Jr. in the first short film that John Lasseter had made at Pixar. Apple took out many patents for the design, most crediting Ive, but on one of them, For a computer system having a movable assembly attached to a flat panel display, Jobs listed himself as the primary inventor. In hindsight, some of Apple's Macintosh designs may seem a bit too cute, but other computer makers were at the other extreme. It was an industry that you'd expect to be innovative, but instead it was dominated by cheaply designed generic boxes. After a few ill-conceived stabs at painting on blue colors and trying new shapes, companies such as Dell, Compaq, and HP commoditized computers by outsourcing, manufacturing, and competing on price. With its spunky designs and its path-breaking applications like iTunes and iMovie, Apple was about the only place innovating. Intel Inside Apple's innovations were more than skin-deep. Since 1994, it had been using a microprocessor called the PowerPC that was made by a partnership of IBM and Motorola. For a few years, it was faster than Intel's chips, an advantage that Apple touted in humorous commercials. By the time of Jobs' return, however, Motorola had fallen behind in producing new versions of the chip. This provoked a fight between Jobs and Motorola's CEO, Chris Galvin. When Jobs decided to stop licensing the Macintosh operating system to clone makers, right after his return to Apple in 1997, he suggested to Galvin that he might consider making an exception for Motorola's clone, the Starmax Mac, but only if Motorola sped up development of new PowerPC chips for laptops. The call got heated. Jobs offered his opinion that Motorola chips sucked. Galvin, who also had a temper, pushed back. Jobs hung up on him. The Motorola Starmax was canceled, and Jobs secretly began planning to move Apple off the Motorola IBM PowerPC chip and to adopt instead Intels. This would not be a simple task. It was akin to writing a new operating system. Jobs did not cede any real power to his board, but he did use its meetings to kick around ideas and think through strategies in confidence while he stood at a whiteboard and led freewheeling discussions. For 18 months, the directors discussed whether to move to an Intel architecture. We debated it. We asked a lot of questions, and finally we all decided it needed to be done, board member Art Levinson recalled. Paul Otellini, who was then president and later became CEO of Intel, began huddling with Jobs. They had gotten to know each other when Jobs was struggling to keep Next alive, and as Ottolini later put it, his arrogance had been temporarily tempered. Ottolini has a calm and wry take on people, and he was amused rather than put off when he discovered, upon dealing with Jobs at Apple in the early 2000s, that his juices were going again and he wasn't nearly as humble anymore. Intel had deals with other computer makers, and Jobs wanted a better price than they had. We had to find creative ways to bridge the numbers, said Ottolini. Most of the negotiating was done, as Jobs preferred, on long walks, sometimes on the trails up to the radio telescope known as the Dish above the Stanford campus. Jobs would start the walk by telling a story and explaining how he saw the history of computers evolving. By the end, he would be haggling over price. Intel had a reputation for being a tough partner coming out of the days when it was run by Andy Grove and Craig Barrett, Ottolini said. I wanted to show that Intel was a company you could work with. So a crack team from Intel worked with Apple, and they were able to beat the conversion deadline by six months. Jobs invited Ottolini to Apple's Top 100 management retreat, where he donned one of the famous Intel lab coats that looked like a bunny suit, and gave Jobs a big hug. At the public announcement in 2005, the usually reserved Ottolini repeated the act. Apple and Intel, together at last, flashed on the big screen. Bill Gates was amazed. Designing crazy-colored cases did not impress him, but a secret program to switch the CPU in a computer, completed seamlessly and on time, was a feat he truly admired. If you'd said, okay, we're going to change our microprocessor chip and we're not going to lose a beat, that sounds impossible, he told me years later when I asked him about Jobs' accomplishments. They basically did that. Options Among Jobs' quirks was his attitude toward money. When he returned to Apple in 1997, he portrayed himself as a person working for $1 a year, doing it for the benefit of the company rather than himself. Nevertheless, he embraced the idea of option mega-grants, granting huge bundles of options to buy Apple stock at a preset price that were not subject to the usual good compensation practices of board committee reviews and performance criteria. When he dropped the interim in his title and officially became CEO, he was offered, in addition to the airplane, a mega-grant by Ed Woolard and the board at the beginning of 2000. Defying the image he cultivated of not being interested in money, he had stunned Woolard by asking for even more options than the board had proposed. But soon after he got them, it turned out that it was for naught. Apple stock cratered in September 2000 due to disappointing sales of the Cube plus the bursting of the Internet bubble, which made the options worthless. Making Matters Worse was a June 2001 cover story in Fortune about overcompensated CEOs, the great CEO pay heist. A mug of Jobs, smiling smugly, filled the cover. Even though his options were underwater at the time, the technical method of valuing them when granted, known as a black shoals valuation, set their worth at $872 million. Fortune proclaimed it by far the largest compensation package ever granted a CEO. It was the worst of all worlds. Jobs had almost no money that he could put in his pocket for his four years of hard and successful turnaround work at Apple, Yet he had become the poster child of greedy CEOs, making him look hypocritical and undermining his self-image. He wrote a scathing letter to the editor, declaring that his options actually are worth zero and offering to sell them to fortune for half of the supposed $872 million the magazine had reported. In the meantime... Jobs wanted the board to give him another big grant of options, since his old ones seemed worthless. He insisted, both to the board and probably to himself, that it was more about getting proper recognition than getting rich. It wasn't so much about the money, he later said in a deposition in an SEC lawsuit over the options. Everybody likes to be recognized by his peers. I felt that the board wasn't really doing the same with me. He felt that the board should have come to him offering a new grant without his having to suggest it. I thought I was doing a pretty good job. It would have made me feel better at the time. His hand-picked board, in fact, doted on him. So they decided to give him another huge grant in August 2001, when the stock price was just under $18. The problem was that he worried about his image especially after the Fortune article. He did not want to accept the new grant unless the Board cancelled his old options at the same time, but to do so would have adverse accounting implications because it would be effectively repricing the old options. That would require taking a charge against current earnings. The only way to avoid this variable accounting problem was to cancel his old options at least six months after his new options were granted. In addition, Jobs started haggling with the board over how quickly the new options would vest. It was not until mid-December 2001 that Jobs finally agreed to take the new options and, braving the optics, wait six months before his old ones were cancelled. But by then, the stock price adjusting for a split, had gone up $3 to about $21. If the strike price of the new options was set at that new level, each would have thus been $3 less valuable. So Apple's legal counsel, Nancy Heinen, looked over the recent stock prices and helped to choose an October date when the stock was $18.30. She also approved a set of minutes that purported to show that the board had approved the grant on that date. The backdating was potentially worth $20 million to Jobs. Once again, Jobs would end up suffering bad publicity without making a penny. Apple's stock price kept dropping, and by March 2003, Even the new options were so low that Jobs traded in all of them for an outright grant of $75 million worth of shares, which amounted to about $8.3 million for each year he had worked since coming back in 1997 through the end of the vesting in 2006. None of this would have mattered much if the Wall Street Journal had not run a powerful series in 2006 about backdated stock options. Apple wasn't mentioned, but its board appointed a committee of three members, Al Gore, Eric Schmidt of Google, and Jerry York, formerly of IBM and Chrysler, to investigate its own practices. We decided at the outset that if Steve was at fault, we would let the chips fall where they may, Gore recalled. The committee uncovered some irregularities with Jobs's grants and those of other top officers, and it immediately turned the findings over to the SEC. Jobs was aware of the backdating, the report said, but he ended up not benefiting financially. A board committee at Disney also found that similar backdating had occurred at Pixar when Jobs was in charge. The laws governing such backdating practices were murky especially since no one at Apple ended up benefiting from the dubiously dated grants. The SEC took eight months to do its own investigation, and in April 2007, it announced that it would not bring action against Apple, based in part on its swift, extensive, and extraordinary cooperation in the Commission's investigation and its prompt self-reporting. Although the SEC found that Jobs had been aware of the backdating, it cleared him of any misconduct because he was unaware of the accounting implications. The SEC did file complaints against Apple's former chief financial officer, Fred Anderson, who was on the board, and general counsel, Nancy Heinen. Anderson, a retired Air Force captain with a square jaw and deep integrity, had been a wise and calming influence at Apple, where he was known for his ability to control Jobs' tantrums. He was cited by the SEC only for negligence regarding the paperwork for one set of grants, not the ones that went to Jobs, and the SEC allowed him to continue to serve on corporate boards. Nevertheless, he ended up resigning from the Apple board. Anderson thought he had been made a scapegoat, When he settled with the SEC, his lawyer issued a statement that cast some of the blame on Jobs. It said that Anderson had cautioned Mr. Jobs that the executive team grant would have to be priced on the date of the actual board agreement, or there could be an accounting charge, and that Jobs replied that the board had given its prior approval. Heinen, who initially fought the charges against her, ended up settling and paying a $2.2 million fine without admitting or denying any wrongdoing. Likewise, the company itself settled a shareholder's lawsuit by agreeing to pay $14 million in damages. Rarely have so many avoidable problems been created by one man's obsession with his own image, Joe Nassera wrote in the New York Times. Then again, This is Steve Jobs we're talking about. Contemptuous of rules and regulations, he created a climate that made it hard for someone like Heinen to buck his wishes. At times, great creativity occurred, but people around him could pay a price. On compensation issues in particular, the difficulty of defying his whims drove some good people to make some bad mistakes. The compensation issue in some ways echoed Jobs's parking quirk. He refused such trappings as having a reserve-for-CEO spot, but he assumed for himself the right to park in the handicapped spaces. He wanted to be seen, both by himself and by others, as someone willing to work for one dollar a year, but he also wanted to have huge stock grants bestowed upon him. Jangling inside him were the contradictions of a counterculture rebel turned business entrepreneur, someone who wanted to believe that he had turned on and tuned in without having sold out and cashed in. Chapter 35 Round 1 Memento Mori Cancer Jobs would later speculate that his cancer was caused by the grueling year that he spent, starting in 1997, running both Apple and Pixar. As he drove back and forth, he had developed kidney stones and other ailments, and he would come home so exhausted that he could barely speak. That's probably when this cancer started growing, because my immune system was pretty weak at that time, he said. There is no evidence that exhaustion or a weak immune system causes cancer. However, his kidney problems did indirectly lead to the detection of his cancer. In October 2003, he happened to run into the urologist who had treated him, and she asked him to get a CAT scan of his kidneys and ureters. It had been five years since his last scan. The new scan revealed nothing wrong with his kidneys, but it did show a shadow on his pancreas, so she asked him to schedule a pancreatic study. He didn't. As usual, he was good at willfully ignoring inputs that he did not want to process. But she persisted. Steve, this is really important, she said a few days later. You need to do this. Her tone of voice was urgent enough that he complied. He went in early one morning And after studying the scan, the doctors met with him to deliver the bad news that it was a tumor. One of them even suggested that he should make sure his affairs were in order, a polite way of saying that he might have only months to live. That evening they performed a biopsy by sticking an endoscope down his throat and into his intestines so they could put a needle into his pancreas and get a few cells from the tumor. Powell remembers her husband's doctors tearing up with joy. It turned out to be an islet cell, or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, which is rare but slower growing and thus more likely to be treated successfully. He was lucky that it was detected so early as the byproduct of a routine kidney screening and thus could be surgically removed before it had definitely spread. One of his first calls was to Larry Brilliant, whom he first met at the ashram in India. Do you still believe in God? Jobs asked him. Brilliant said that he did, and they discussed the many paths to God that had been taught by the Hindu guru Neem Karoli Baba. Then Brilliant asked Jobs what was wrong. I have cancer, Jobs replied. Art Levinson, who was on Apple's board, Was chairing the board meeting of his own company, Genentech, when his cell phone rang and Jobs' name appeared on the screen. As soon as there was a break, Levinson called him back and heard the news of the tumor. He had a background in cancer biology and his firm made cancer treatment drugs, so he became an advisor. So did Andy Grove of Intel, who had fought and beaten prostate cancer. Jobs called him that Sunday and he drove right over to Jobs' house and stayed for two hours. To the horror of his friends and wife, Jobs decided not to have surgery to remove the tumor, which was the only accepted medical approach. I really didn't want them to open up my body, so I tried to see if a few other things would work, he told me years later with a hint of regret. Specifically, he kept to a strict vegan diet with large quantities of fresh carrot and fruit juices. To that regimen, he added acupuncture, a variety of herbal remedies, and occasionally a few other treatments he found on the Internet or by consulting people around the country, including a psychic. For a while, he was under the sway of a doctor who operated a natural healing clinic in Southern California that stressed the use of organic herbs, juice fasts, frequent bowel cleansings, hydrotherapy, and the expression of all negative feelings. The big thing was that he really was not ready to open his body, Powell recalled. It's hard to push someone to do that. She did try, however. The body exists to serve the spirit, she argued. His friends repeatedly urged him to have surgery and chemotherapy. Steve talked to me when he was trying to cure himself by eating horse shit and horse shit roots, and I told him he was crazy, Grove recalled. Levinson said that he pleaded every day with Jobs and found it enormously frustrating that I just couldn't connect with him. The fights almost ruined their friendship. That's not how cancer works. Levinson insisted when Jobs discussed his diet treatments. You cannot solve this without surgery and blasting it with toxic chemicals. Even the diet doctor, Dean Ornish, a pioneer in alternative and nutritional methods of treating diseases, took a long walk with Jobs and insisted that sometimes traditional methods were the right option. You really need surgery, Ornish told him. Jobs' obstinacy lasted for nine months after his October 2003 diagnosis. Part of it was the product of the dark side of his reality distortion field. I think Steve has such a strong desire for the world to be a certain way that he wills it to be that way, Levinson speculated. Sometimes it doesn't work. Reality is unforgiving. The flip side of his wondrous ability to focus was his fearsome willingness to filter out things he did not wish to deal with. This led to many of his great breakthroughs, but it could also backfire. He has that ability to ignore stuff he doesn't want to confront, Powell explained. It's just the way he's wired. Whether it involved personal topics relating to his family and marriage, or professional issues relating to engineering or business challenges, or health and cancer issues, jobs sometimes simply didn't engage. In the past, he had been rewarded for what his wife called his magical thinking, his assumption that he could will things to be as he wanted, but cancer does not work that way. Powell enlisted everyone close to him, including his sister, Mona Simpson, to try to bring him around. In July 2004, a CAT scan showed that the tumor had grown and possibly spread. It forced him to face reality. Jobs underwent surgery on Saturday, July 31, 2004, at Stanford University Medical Center. He did not have a full Whipple procedure, which removes a large part of the stomach and intestine as well as the pancreas. The doctors considered it, but decided instead on a less radical approach, a modified Whipple that removed only part of the pancreas. Jobs sent employees an email the next day, using his power book hooked up to an airport express in his hospital room, announcing his surgery. He assured them that the type of pancreatic cancer he had represents about 1% of the total cases of pancreatic cancer diagnosed each year and can be cured by surgical removal if diagnosed in time. Mine was. He said he would not require chemotherapy or radiation treatment and he planned to return to work in September. While I'm out, I've asked Tim Cook to be responsible for Apple's day-to-day operations so we shouldn't miss a beat. I'm sure I'll be calling some of you way too much in August and I look forward to seeing you in September. One side effect of the operation would become a problem for Jobs because of his obsessive diets and the weird routines of purging and fasting that he had practiced since he was a teenager. Because the pancreas provides the enzymes that allow the stomach to digest food and absorb nutrients, removing part of the organ makes it hard to get enough protein. Patients are advised to make sure that they eat frequent meals and maintain a nutritious diet with a wide variety of meat and fish proteins, as well as full-fat milk products. Jobs had never done this, and he never would. He stayed in the hospital for two weeks and then struggled to regain his strength. I remember coming back and sitting in that rocking chair, he told me, pointing to one in his living room. I didn't have the energy to walk. It took me a week before I could walk around the block. I pushed myself to walk to the gardens a few blocks away, then further, and within six months, I had my energy almost back. Unfortunately, the cancer had spread. During the operation, the doctors found three liver metastases. Had they operated nine months earlier, They might have caught it before it spread, though they would never know for sure. Jobs began chemotherapy treatments, which further complicated his eating challenges. The Stanford Commencement Jobs kept his continuing battle with the cancer secret. He told everyone that he had been cured, just as he had kept quiet about his diagnosis in October 2003. Such secrecy was not surprising, it was part of his nature. What was more surprising was his decision to speak very personally and publicly about his cancer diagnosis. Although he rarely gave speeches other than his staged product demonstrations, he accepted Stanford's invitation to give its June 2005 commencement address. He was in a reflective mood after his health scare and turning 50. For help with the speech, he called the brilliant scriptwriter Aaron Sorkin, a few good men, the West Wing. Jobs sent him some thoughts. That was in February, and I heard nothing, so I ping him again in April, and he says, Oh, yeah, and I send him a few more thoughts, Jobs recounted. I finally get him on the phone, and he keeps saying, Yeah, but finally it's the beginning of June, and he never sent me anything. Jobs got panicky. He had always written his own presentations, but he had never done a commencement address. One night he sat down and wrote the speech himself with no help other than bouncing ideas off his wife. As a result, it turned out to be a very intimate and simple talk, with the unadorned and personal feel of a perfect Steve Jobs product. Alex Haley once said that the best way to begin a speech is, let me tell you a story. Nobody is eager for a lecture, but everybody loves a story, and that was the approach Jobs chose. Today, I want to tell you three stories from my life, he began. That's it. No big deal. Just three stories. The first was about dropping out of Reed College. I could stop taking the required classes that didn't interest me, and begin dropping in on the ones that looked far more interesting. The second was about how getting fired from Apple turned out to be good for him. The heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again, less sure about everything. The students were unusually attentive, despite a plane circling overhead with a banner that exhorted him to recycle all e-waste and it was his third tale that enthralled them. It was about being diagnosed with cancer and the awareness it brought. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, These things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart.